welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Today, Kathy Craninger, uh, President Trump's pick to replace Mick Mulvaney at the head of the CFPB, faced a Senate banking committee uh, to defend her qualifications to run a controversial agency that many Republicans think should not exist. This is her confirmation hearing. And at it, Craninger discussed her commitment to keeping the CFPB true to its mandate. For more on the story, we're joined now by Evan Weinberger. He's a reporter for Bloomberg Law. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. And Evan, a lot of people have been scratching their heads about this one. What is up with this nomination? Well, what is up is that at this point, it looks like she has the votes to at least make it out of committee. And if uh, Mitch McConnell wants to bring it before the Senate floor, get her confirmed to be the next director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, After that... the, the real motivation here was at the end of June, there was a deadline to nominate somebody. Otherwise, Mick Mulvaney, who's currently the acting director, would have had to leave his post at the CFPB. So they put in Kathy Kraninger, who was kind of an unknown quantity. She works at the Office of Management and Budget, where Mick Mulvaney also works. Um, and nobody had really knew anything about her. She didn't have any experience in financial policy or in consumer finance or anything relevant to the CFPB, mostly in budget work and the Department of Homeland Security and security issues, things like that. So, so that's a sh- kind of a shell nomination or? I wouldn't say shell necessarily, although it's it's clear that <laughs> if she is confirmed, she's most likely going to follow along with what Mick Mulvaney has been doing at the CFPB. Um, She's a budget person. The Trump administration proposed cutting the CFPB's budget by 23% in fiscal 2019. But because it's an independent agency, they don't actually have any control. The fear and Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is kind of the brainchild of the CFPB, uh, the the intellectual architect of the CFPB, uh, she expressed some concerns that Kraninger is going to go in there and find ways to cut that budget, whether it's firing civil servants or cutting uh, examination budgets and things of that nature. Did Kraninger in the nomination, since she has no experience in banking or financial services, what did she say her qualifications are for running this consumer watchdog, the biggest consumer watchdog agency we have? Primarily budget issues. I mean, she, she, by all accounts, is a talented manager. She's a talented budget person. She knows what she's a a 20-year veteran of government, both on uh, Senate and House committees and at the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of Management and Budget. So she comes in there qualified for a range of jobs. It's just not necessarily (laughs) clear to at least Democrats on the committee where those skills come into play when it comes to running a consumer uh, regulator. Yeah, one one of our, our stories on the terminal calls her an enigma. (laughs) <laughs> kind of. She most definitely mastered the skill of using a lot of words to stay a very little amount uh, in the questions from senators. But, but the, 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 we know what the president thinks of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He doesn't like it. He wants to roll it back, cut it and all that. She's just she's going to follow the marching orders. Um, that is the best guess that anyone has. A source of mine uh, emailed me during the hearing. I actually know less about Kathy Craninger now than I did before the hearing started. 
So uh, we mentioned you mentioned Elizabeth Warren, and this the CFPB is her baby, so to speak. And we've seen her in these hearings get very, you know, sarcastic, sharp, whatever you want to call it. Did she take that attitude with Kraninger? She was outraged at Kraninger, but not because of CFPB issues, at least at the start. Her first round of questioning focused on uh, Kraninger's potential role in the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policies and the child separation policies at the border, because her role at OMB is to oversee uh, the Homeland Security Department and Justice Department's budgets. So Democrats had asked for the hearing to be postponed uh, to get more information about what she did in helping to craft the policies. They wanted the documents. Right. I mean, at one point, uh, Warren said that, you know, the child separation policies... will be a sta- moral stain on Kraninger, and any senators who vote to confirm her will have a, will carry that moral stain because they gave her a big promotion in the wake of it. Wow. Can, can we clarify, too, just for the record, what Mick Mulvaney has actually done at the CFPB while he's there? I know that he has rolled back some proposed regulations and some consumer protections, right. but the CFPB still has a basic mission that it must fulfill. Right. Well, what Mick, one of Mick Mulvaney's first actions was to say that a controversial payday lending rule that the CFB finalized right before his predecessor, Richard Cordray, left the Bureau, uh, it was scheduled to take effect. Uh, Mulvaney said that they're going to reconsider it, and many advocates for the rules think that that's just a prelude to eliminating the rule altogether. There also, he took the uh, CFEB's Office of Fair Lending, which was its main anti-discrimination unit, and it had been a fairly independent office within the CFEB. Uh, Mulvaney took that and folded into another unit, took away its independent enforcement authority, uh, and there he has slowed down the pace of enforcement actions, and even with the enforcement actions that he's taken outside of the Wells Fargo uh, enforcement action from earlier in the summer, he's m- taken a much lighter uh, touch on enforcement actions than his predecessor did. And when she was asked by Sherrod Brown to name something specific that she approved of that Mulvaney has done, it was or that the CFPB has done, she mentioned Wells Fargo and Equifax. Right. Not the two biggest things that they've... That they've uh... Well, Wells Fargo technically was the biggest enforcement penalty that, that the CFPB had ever yep. applied, but one, it did it in conjunction with the... Uh, Office of the Controller of the Currency, which is another bank regulator, and they also did it after the president tweeted that there would be big penalties for Wells Fargo. Evan Weinberger, reporter for Bloomberg Law. Thanks for your reporting. The Republican sweeping 2017 federal tax law put a new $10,000 cap on the federal tax deduction for state and local taxes, which will hit northeastern states like New York hard. Here's New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo on the tax plan in late 2017. They call it a tax cut plan. In New York, it is a tax increase plan. So now New York is joining with New Jersey, Connecticut, and Maryland and suing the Trump administration to invalidate the cap. Joining me is Lawrence Zelenak, a tax professor at Duke Law School. So let's start with the basics. How much will this cap on the so-called SALT deduction actually affect taxpayers in these northeastern states? 
Well, it, it affects you uh, if you pay more than uh, $10,000 in state and local taxes, and that would be uh, the, the sum of your property taxes and your state income tax. Uh, it, it will be... Uh, uh, I, I can't give you specific, uh, you know, data on those states, but but it's it's clearly significant. I um, there will be some people who would have had a tax cut uh, from the rate reductions if it weren't for the salt limit. Where with the salt limit, they're end up gonna they're gonna end up having no tax cut or even a tax increase. So, on what legal basis are the states bringing the lawsuit? Well, their their argument, which I think is extremely weak, uh, is. <laughs> Is is that uh, a state and local tax deduction is constitutionally required? It's so it's based on the uh, on the Tenth Amendment, which says basically that powers not specifically convert conferred on um, on the federal government by the uh, Constitution are reserved to the state and by general principles uh, and on general principles of federalism or states' rights. But I I, I think it's a uh, very much a long shot. Why why a long shot? Well, uh, a couple of reasons. One is um, there's a uh, Supreme Court case which from 1988 called South Carolina v. Baker, which is not directly on point, but it's pretty darn close. So uh, since the beginning of the, uh, the federal income tax, uh, interest on municipal bonds or state and local bonds had been tax exempt. Then in the early 1980s, um, Congress uh, imposed uh, a, narrow, a minor limitation on that exemption, which said basically that uh, the um, exemption no longer applied to state and local bonds that were not in registered form. So if you could hold the bonds anonymously, then the income wasn't tax exempt anymore. And South Carolina and a number of other states sued uh, on on the basis that they had, arguing that they had a constitutional right to issue uh, bonds with income tax exempt uh, at the federal level. Um, and that um, uh, that therefore, the, the the early 1980s legislation violated their constitutional rights. And uh, in 1988, uh, in in the South Carolina v. Baker case, the Supreme Court ruled by a vote of eight to one, so it wasn't even close, mm-hmm. that there was no constitutional uh, requirement that uh, state and local bond interest be tax exempt. Now, this is not obviously not exactly the same issue, but on the other hand, it's pretty darn close, and uh, it, it's hard for me to see what the argument would be for distinguishing South Carolina v. Baker. So, Lawrence, in in the complaints, some of the uh, st- things that the state says the states say is that the federal government went after the states deliberately that are democratic, and they. Um, They quote conservative economist Stephen Moore, who advised Trump on the tax policy, quoting him as saying the salt deduction is death to Democrats. Will that play any part in the court's decision whether this was done to hit Democratic states? Well, I, I don't think so. I mean, my, my uh, if, if I remember right, in, in the recent um, um, Supreme Court ruling on the, uh, the the immigration restrictions, there was um, uh, there were quotations not from Stephen Moore, who I think kind of doesn't count in a way. I mean, he's not he's not in Congress after all, but from from the president himself indicating some dubious motivation. Right. And uh, and 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 the court said that didn't matter. So if if the president's motivation doesn't matter. I hardly think that Stephen Moore's motivation is is probably going to be that crucial. No. Can I, can I oh, point, sure. point out one one other thing in relating to this is um, if um, if if the state and local tax deduction is really constitutionally required, then the federal income tax has probably been unconstitutional for a long time. 
because it's it's always been the case that uh, you get to deduct your state and local taxes only if you itemize, and um, traditionally the percentage of taxpayers who itemize has only been about one third. So so we've had a situation where all along about two thirds of taxpayers have not gotten this deduction, which supposedly is uh, is constitutionally required. In addition to anyone who's subject to the alternative minimum tax uh, hasn't been allowed the salt deduction for <laughs> since I think 1986, uh-huh. and and for a, a long period period of time uh, from 1986 until fairly recently, um, state sales tax wasn't deductible under any circumstances. Um, and, and all of those things, by the logic of, of this new lawsuit, um, were, probably were unconstitutional, but of course they weren't unconstitutional, and for the same reason they weren't unconstitutional. I, I, I don't expect this well, lawsuit to succeed either. Well, let's, let's switch a little bit. We have a, a minute here. Governor Cuomo advanced proposals in the state budget this year to help New Yorkers try to circumvent the cap on deductions, creation of new charitable credits and payroll tax deductions. The IRS said in May that it would scrutinize the New York's tax workaround. Has anything happened there? Uh, it, n- no, not well. I, I have an article on that very topic coming out in tax notes. Well, tell uh, us, next, tell us in thirty seconds the, the basics of your article. Uh, that that I, I think the, there's two different kinds of workarounds. Um, one is uh, trying to convert charitable, or excuse me, trying to convert state and local taxes to charitable deductions. That's what the article is about, and I conclude that doesn't work. The uh. the, the other the, the other workaround um, is uh, basically trying to convert um, state taxes, income taxes on wages into a payroll tax paid by the employer rather than by the employee. I think that probably could work as far as the the, the federal tax result is concerned. Okay, we're going to take that good news. (laughs) We'll have to end it there. Thanks so much. That's Lawrence Zelenek, a tax professor at Duke Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.